0: You have your Bibles, or you have a phone. Go to Isaiah chapter nine. That's where we're going to be this evening. Really, if you're if you're new to the Bible, almost just open the Bible up to the middle, and you'll basically be in Isaiah, and uh, we're going to be in chapter nine uh, this to begin this evening. We are uh, starting a new series uh, this evening that's going to take us throughout the uh, rest of the summer. Uh, the series is called "The Throne of David." the throne of David. Uh, What we're doing is we're specifically looking at the life of David through the books 1 and 2 Samuel and then also in the Psalms. Now, um, just a couple of vision points about this series and about the summer. When a church is brand new, like we are, we're a brand new church, um, what we do and what we say really matters because it sets a culture. And five years down the road, if there's a culture in our church that we don't want to be in our church, it's much harder to change it then than it is to change it right now. So, um, just a couple notes on why this series is important for the literal season of summer. The first of which is rest. Um, Summer is a time to rest and reflect. I I don't know about you, but God has highlighted different physical seasons, and he's almost coupled with those physical seasons, just spiritual seasons, where he's teaching me something unique, he's teaching me something in those seasons consecutively uh, throughout the years. And for me, summer is a time to rest, to contemplate, to get alone, to be quiet. Um, Sometimes for, for many families, summer is the time where things speed up. It's like, okay, then we're doing this, and who's got the kids that day, and we have practice here, and we're we're gonna take trying to get that vacation squeezed in there, and so it's almost like we're gonna hurry, 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 and then we're gonna rest. And it's like that wasn't really that restful because I was hurrying all the way up into it. I kind of need to land the plane a little more smoothly next summer or something like that. Um, but we really want this summer, culturally at Saints Hill, to be a time where because we've given God our ultimate yes in one area, it frees us up to give a bunch of nos in, in other areas. Those of you who are my friends, this is like, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, you know that my wife and I say no to so many things. that I, Things will just happen, they're like, oh yeah, we got away to the gorge this week with all our friends, it's like, you didn't invite us. Well, we invited you nine times, and you said no to all those other times, so this time we didn't invite you guys. So that's how our life goes here and there, but it's basically, we say no to everything because we have prioritized very, very few things in our lives. Uh, That's what we want this summer to be here at St. Sill, a time for silence and solitude. We're going to learn about a man, David, who spent 20-plus years alone in the wilderness, and it shaped him to be a leader in God's kingdom. So we want this to just, if I I can encourage you, this is a time to rest. This is a time for us to contemplate. It's a time for us to, to actually, you, you've heard of, you know, working in the job and working on the job, you know the difference. Working in the job, you're just doing the, the task that you have in front of you, but working on the job is taking a step back and going, okay, how am I actually doing this task, and how could I do it differently? In the same way, summer is a time for us to, to step back and go, okay, what do I actually want to grow in this year, Lord. Where are you actually taking me and how can I be the best sheep possible? How can I get in line as best as possible? Secondly, in this series, you're going to hear from our other elders and our other leaders. Um, We want you to hear from the various uh, leaders within our church. We want you to hear their hearts. The psalms, as for, I'm sure this is true for many of you, uh, often become companions for specific times in our lives. And you'll read a psalm and you'll just just be like, oh, that reminds me of when I was, you know, 22 years old doing this thing and when I was living there. Or "Or that reminds me of of that one moment in my life where, God, you came through and you spoke so clearly to me through this psalm. We want you to hear from some of our leaders in this church and hear from their hearts. They won't be so much teachings as much as just sharing from their hearts about different psalms. We want to honor and highlight um, our other elders so that you know who to go to when you have pastoral needs. So I'm looking forward to you guys getting to know some of our leadership even better. But for tonight, that was all my that was just the preamble. Okay, you guys ready? Uh, for for tonight. Uh, this, this past Easter we read um, Isaiah chapter 9 at um, this beautiful passage in Isaiah 9. And I had this realization for the first time. You know, you've read a passage a million times before, and all of a sudden you see something that you've never seen before in it. And that, that's kind of what happened to me. Um, so if you're, I, I, in Isaiah chapter 9, look down at your Bibles, verse 6, a, a passage that is gonna be very familiar to you. It, it's a prophecy about Messiah Jesus coming. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Just a beautiful passage. Have you ever read that and you're like, I could use a wonderful counselor? I've had some so, so okay counselors. I need a wonderful one. Or like, I don't have any peace, but there's a prince of peace. I'd like that, prin- that prince to come over. Um, I just read this passage and I'm like, wow, it's just breathtaking. But this one part of it stood out to me this past Easter, and it was this. He will reign on David's throne. Isn't that interesting? God is sending Messiah and is like, oh, he's going to reign on the throne of David. Now, notice what the Messiah is doing with this throne. He's establishing it and he's upholding it. So you you would think that when God prophesied through Isaiah about Jesus coming, he'd say something like this, you have never seen a throne like this before, you have never seen a king like this before, he's going to establish Yahweh's throne. It blows David's throne out of the water, it's going to be amazing, but he doesn't say that. He says that this Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, will establish David's throne, he will reign from David's throne. Why? You ever wondered why? You're about to find out. (laughs) I want to propose to you this evening that David so impressed God with his life that God didn't want to do his own thing. He wanted to do David's thing. Okay, this is tough two weeks in a row, guys, but uh, we'll get into it. David so impressed God That God was like, I don't want to do my thing when I send a Messiah. I want to do David's thing. I appreciate that. Look, Isaiah 9 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Emmanuel, and and notice the promises uh, that God gives us when you look down. He says, a child is born, a son is given, there's a government that's going to be on his shoulders. So have you been tired of the governments over you, Israelites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans? Yes, we're sick of it, but there's a government on his shoulders. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, now, um, you know how like hyperlinks, when you click on a link online, it takes you to a whole nother world, a whole nother website with, uh, with I don't know all the terms, Taylor. I'm sorry. There's, there's a bunch of coding that happens in, on that website, and that's why you see what you see, the colors you see, the motion that you see, all of that. Well, um, in the Bible, there are a bunch of hyperlinks. There are different phrases and different uh, verses that say things repeated throughout the entire meta narrative of the Bible. And when you read them, what they're supposed to do to the literate Bible reader is they hyperlink you to a whole nother world. And each of these things are hyperlinks. The government will be on his shoulder, hyperlinks to a place. The wonderful counselor, hyperlinks to a place. But, but in this passage, I just want to point out two this evening. I just want to start with two. These are the two. Uh, The first one is this, a child is born. It's a hyperlink to a whole nother place. We're about to check it out. The second one is the government will be on his shoulders. It says this in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Next slide. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I I like to call this the vision statement of humanity. You want to know what your life is about? Here's what it is about. It is co-ruling over all of creation with God. Now, if that language makes you uncomfortable, you're like, whoa, ruling power? Ooh, Karl Marx said that's not a good thing. I'm not into it. Well, Karl Marx isn't the one who defines what is good and bad. God is. And he said, from the beginning, you were intended to rule. He said, from the beginning, you were actually to be given authority and power, and he trusted you enough to give it to you without controlling you. So when we read this, the government will be on his shoulders. We say, oh, I remember another government where God had invited humanity to rule alongside with him. I wonder whatever happened to that government. Is it the same one? Now, the story of Genesis is that we were supposed to rule over the animals, to steward the animals, but instead, an animal ends up ruling over humanity, right? The serpent comes into the garden and through a suggestion gets authority over the humans. Now, when that happens, rather than the humans ruling over the animal, the animal ruling over the humans, what ends up happening is that humans begin acting like animals, Next thing you know, in chapter four of the book of Genesis, uh, Cain, you guys are all familiar with Cain, uh, Cain faces this beastly desire. And you know what God says to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. What crouches? An animal. It, it, it wants to devour you. What, de, what, what devours things? A, a, like a lion, an animal. Lamech, uh, in, in that same, in that, I think the next chapter over, Um, he kills a man, and he then brags to his wives about it. Sometimes people read the Bible, and they're like, see, the Bible's okay with polygamy. No, no, no. When you read the narrative of the Bible, you realize that the first big-time sinner in the Bible who was proud about his sin, it's the first time we read he had multiple spouses. Everybody up to this point had one spouse, but you get to him, he's the bragger about his sin. He's got two. It's in the narrative, Morality is completely lost over the next uh, 10 chapters or so. It's just this downward spiral. Really, no hope until you get to Genesis chapter 12. And this is a theme that continues all throughout the Old Testament. The story of Judges. How many of you guys have ever read the books, the book of Judges before? Um, the story of Judges is this fascinating book, and, it, and the mantra throughout the entirety of the book is this. Each person did what was right in their own eyes. No longer co-ruling, just ruling. But back there in Genesis chapter three, if, if you, the astute Bible reader knows this, uh, that God makes a promise that one day a human will be born. Wait, a human will be born? Think, what is, where have we read that? Oh, verse six, for to us a child is born, a human is born, a son is given who won't give in to the beast but instead will rule over the beast. Check it out, Genesis chapter three. Verse 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So, so you've got to kind of read almost a little bit in between the lines here, but what's essentially going on is there's this cosmic war that begins in Genesis chapter three between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve, the offspring of animal beastly living and the offspring of human co-ruling with God between humans and humans who act like snakes. But one day, there's going to be a child who crushes the head of the snake. Now, the next question you should have is, where is this child? Who is this child? When are we gonna see this child? Well, he's coming, but we get glimpses of him in the lives of other people throughout the Bible, in the life of Joseph, in the life of Moses, but as we're focusing on in this series, particularly in the life of David. Check this out. Next slide. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Quite a resume if you ask me. Holy cow. I don't know. I'd be like, you got the job. It's fine. It's like lions, bears. Um but if you are an Israelite and you're reading this, you know what you're thinking? You're going, whoa, remember, there will be a child who will one day not be ruled by beasts, but who rules the beasts. But it wasn't just this symbolic meaning of David's actions as a shepherd, killing the beast. He didn't just rule, he co-ruled. Remember who was supposed to do that? Yeah, humanity. And David restores that co-rulership. David's the closest thing that we have seen in the Bible up to that point before Jesus of what it looked like to rule with God because David ruled through relationship while many had come before David to lead Israel, David was the first who made relationship with God the primary way that he led. You can like, imagine David like, walking into like, the ancient version of like, the G20 summit, and the Assyria is asking him, so hey, what's your strategy for ruling this year over Israel? And he's like, oh, it's just a little bit of prophetic insight for the blessing of the world through relationship with the creator. It's really no big deal. It's open to everybody. They're like, um, what? He's like, yeah. Relationship is how I rule. It's how I rule. Now, I think we understand when we talk about relationship with God in the church. For the most part, we all kind of understand that God doesn't want your religion; He wants relationship with you. Like we've heard that a million times for those of us who have grown up in the church. Flip over to uh, Psalm chapter twenty-five to the left in your Bible. Psalm 25 is where we're going to spend the rest of our evening. Um, what does relationship practically look like with God? We, we, you know, it's one of those words where you say it so many times that you forget what it actually means. What does it mean to have relationship with God like David had relationship with God? Well, I love Psalm 25 because I feel like it really describes tangibly what relationship with God looks like. So if we could almost like do open heart surgery with David through Psalm 25, what are the hallmarks of his relationship with God that so captured God's heart that he's like, I'm not doing my own thing, I'm doing David's thing. We need to look at the heart of David. I just want to look at three different verses, not the whole thing, but three verses from this chapter to see what was the heart like that was after God's own heart. If God said, that's a man after my own heart, what was that heart like look down at your Bible's verse 1 it says this In you Lord my God I put my trust I trust in you do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me From the very beginning God has been interested in a people who trust him If I were to Make a robot. I could never make a robot, maybe with Taylor's help. He's like the smartest tech guy I know. If, I were to, if we were to make a robot together, and we programmed this robot to love me, every day I'd come home and the robot would be like, you're amazing. You're awesome. No complaints here. I'd be like, hey, that's pretty nice. And uh, then he's like, hey, take a seat. I'll give you a massage. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Would that robot be loving me? No. I would be loving me because I programmed the robot to love me. Because God is interested in the real thing, not fake things, he doesn't force or coerce anyone. Instead, he says, I want trust, and you'll never trust me if I control you. So here's two trees. You make the choice whether you will co-reign and co-rule, whether you'll have trust or not. I remember um, when I was uh, 20 years old, I uh, did a study abroad program. Anybody ever done study abroad before? It's like so, oh yeah. Some of you have gone like really fun places. I went to Bolivia. And uh, does anybody know you're like Brazil? No, 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 Bolivia. Um, It's a South American country. And basically spent four months uh, sweating a lot, (laughs) Uh, missing home a ton and uh, having bugs crawl all over me, which if you know me, it's just, I tried, I thought, I'm gonna be a missionary and do like some adventurous thing. I was not cut out for that. But anyway, I remember I I get to Bolivia and um, it's like, oh, it's like the first day I I wake up and I remember having just this panic. This, This maybe sounds so silly now, but I had this panic over me and I was like, God, I am not getting out of this bed unless I can, pr- you, I, I, can tr- I trust that you're out of this bed as well. Because I know you're here, and I can hear you right now, and I got my Bible, and I'm like, oh, I'm like more using it as a shield from like bugs. But I, and, and I remember just thinking, I'm not moving unless you're going to move with me. And I remember that whole time in my life, it was one of the most beautiful times in my life because I was so desperate for him. I had all my comfort stripped away and all I had left was just him. And I just remember pouring over the Psalms and the Psalms taught me as a young man what relationship looks like. I remember just being like, oh, this is how David trusts you. Okay, I don't know if you're gonna come through, but I'm gonna trust you like David trusted you. And so the psalms, I didn't just go, what an interesting literary device that he used. I was like, no, God, I need you. I need you. I remember just his words became my words. His psalms became my psalms. His relationship with God began to inform and shape my relationship with God. And and what I learned in this time in my life is that there is a huge difference between faith and trust. There shouldn't be, but culturally speaking, there's a huge difference between faith and trust. It's one thing to know something to be true, it's another thing to need it to be true. Faith, here's what faith does, faith says, "Um, I believe that airplanes fly. I've seen them, they fly all over the the place. It's trust to say, I'm going to go fly on an airplane and I'm going to be okay. As I get older, I just more and more, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> this is not making much sense. What trust does is it allows the object that I have faith in to do what it does but for me personally. It's not just, oh yeah, I trust that that bench would hold somebody if they sat down on it. That's faith. It's I'm going to actually go and sit down on the bench. I'm going to allow the object to actually do something for me, not just sit back and observe it, right? See, see we're not called to believe in principles. That's not the Christian life. If you're in pursuit of principles, you're in pursuit of a kingdom without a king. We're, we're in pursuit of a king. We're, we're, we're called to, to believe and to know a person, And it is relationship that God wants with his people. That's why he loves the heart that David had so much. Because David longed for just intimacy, for communing with God. One of the things that we're trying to cultivate in this series is David's confidence in the character of God. He's just got so much confidence in God's character. He's like, God's gonna come through. He's asking God to do things that we would never dream of asking God to do because he believes God can do things that we actually don't believe God can do. The other day, I was thinking about a friend of mine who recently lost her job. And uh, I was praying, she just came to mind, so I thought, oh, I'll, I guess I'll pray for her. And here was my prayer God, I wish that you would do something for her. She doesn't have a job, and it's a really bad situation. And so I hope that you do something, God. Amen. <laughs> that posture is very different from confidence in his character, that posture is a posture of wishing. It's a posture of wondering if God is good rather than being convinced that he is good. It's like, if you could do something, then maybe that'd be nice. Rather than, God, I know that you are good. I know that you intend good for her. And so God, this week, this Tuesday, I want to see something happen, some kind of movement in her job. This was one of David's hallmarks. His psalms are so touching because they so clearly understand and articulate God's character. He's confident about it. Because David depended on God's character, he built up a history of God coming through. And so every time a new situation would come to him that was dangerous or scary or filled him with fear, he was able to step in it with a shared history with God rather than wondering if God was actually good enough to do something in that moment. Next, skip down, uh, next part of his heart, if we're kind of moving through his heart and figuring out what was in there. uh, Verse four, it says this. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths, Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Well, what does it mean to know his ways and to, uh, to, to know his paths? What does that actually mean? Well, it, it's a position where primarily I am the follower, he is the leader. I am the sheep, he is the shepherd. I am the learner, he is the teacher. Do you have that posture in your life? Do you? A ministry leader uh, who's quite a bit older than me, he told me this one time, he said, "My life has been one big experiment of learning to not get ahead of the shepherd. Have you ever had that where you're just like, "Oh God, no, no, I know where we should go. I know what I should do. I know what's best for my discipleship. I know what I should be, be, be practicing, and so I'm just going to go do it." Rather than primarily yielding and saying, "Teach me your ways." I wanna know your paths. Guide me in your truth. See, I want his paths, not my own. I want his ways, not my best attempts. We live in a culture where popular opinion is how you decide the validity of a truth or a viewpoint. I call it like, like the YouTube hits. And so the more hits a video has on YouTube, the more value it has, the the more valid its viewpoint is, or or, or the more you should pay attention to it. And and so we we do this with truth, as we go, I'm not sure if there is really any truth, but whatever people are talking about, whatever the consensus is around this issue, then because of all the hits it's getting, because of all the attention it's getting, because of how much I'm reading about it, it must be true. That's the opposite of teach me your ways. Let me know your paths. We have this concept in our culture. I'm gonna make somebody mad. Here we go. Uh, We have this concept in our culture of my truth. Well, my truth is this. Have I shared my truth with you? There's no such thing as your truth. There's your experience. And that's great. In fact, Christians should be the first to say, hey, what's your story? Tell me about your experience. But your experience does not trump his truth or his ways or his paths. David so impressed God because he wouldn't hold his experiences above the truth of God. F.B. Meyer, just this old uh, theologian from the 1800s, in his book, The Shepherd's Psalm, he says this. Unbelief puts circumstances between itself and Christ so as to not see him. Faith puts Christ between itself and circumstances so that it cannot see them. Just snap a photo already. I mean, that, like, yes, that's exactly what it is. So many of us, our Christian life basically is this. We read the scriptures and we go, that's nice, I got these experiences, and we kind of mix those two things together to come up with a path that we take. That's called syncretism. (laughs) For all you missiology people out there. That's like taking one culture and another culture and saying, but this is the true culture. No, 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 the true culture is this. (laughs) This is the truth, his ways. His paths. Lastly, last part, skip down to verse 14. This is just, oh, this is amazing. Verse 14, it says this, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. David is speaking out of experience. He's like, the Lord has confided in me. He's made his covenant known to me. My eyes are always on the Lord. Why? Because he's released my feet from snares. He's done it. Another translation in the ESV, it says this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And this, I just love this translation. This is so good. The New Living Translation, it says this. Friendship with God is reserved for those who reverence him. With them alone, he shares the secrets of his promises. Isn't that good? It's just unbelievable. So get this. God has secrets about his promises, the things that he's talked about all throughout the scriptures. Who gets to hear those secrets? His friends. Those who revere him. Those who fear him. Okay, how do I become a friend of God? How do I become a friend of God? You fear him. You revere him. You make him primary in your life. Is he primary in your life this evening? This was so convicting for me to think about this week. Is he primary or is someone else? Is he primary or is something else? Because I want to be the friend who hears the secrets. Who, who do you tell secrets to? You, you never tell a secret to somebody you don't trust because then it's not a secret. You only tell secrets to people that you trust. who so get this trust God and he will trust you tell him secrets and he will tell you secrets it's about relationship it's not about checking a box it's about every day waking up and going here's the secrets of my heart lord what are yours tell me what you want to do now many have wondered what the fear of God is is it is it actually fear or is it is it just respect like what about the passage it was mentioned earlier this evening uh, perfect love casts out all fear does that include this kind of fear The fear of God is tough to nail down. That's why it's only described in the scriptures by what it produces. The fear of God is shown by the placement he has relationally in your life. So when you're friends with God, you know, oh, I must fear God. Why? Because he's made you a friend. His friendship is for those who fear him. What is the fear of God? It's saying, above all other things, I will place you primary because I'm more interested in what you think than me trying to figure out what I think amongst all this mess. The mark of a friend of God is having conversation around the secrets of the kingdom. Do you have those kind of conversations? It's possible. This is what you are invited into. This is what you're invited into. You're invited into that kind of of relationship with him. Now, two thoughts to end this evening. I wanna talk a little bit about loneliness, just because God put this on my heart when I was thinking about relationship with him this this week. I wanna talk about loneliness and the relationship that God wants with people. I think this message is super timely for the world that we're living in. Uh, Somehow in an age where technology has attempted to solve the problems of connection, we have more ways to connect than ever before, Um, our problem of loneliness has gotten even worse. Uh, there's recently, I think we have a, a little photo up here from this study that was done. I, I love this, uh, this quote right here. Um, a great paradox of our hyper-connected digital age is that we seem to be drifting apart. You'd think that we would be at least drifting together. Maybe not immediately together, but you know, slow drift. But in fact, we seem to be drifting apart. A recent survey that this uh, Dhruv uh, Kular did um, discovered more than half of their survey respondents, 54%, said they always or sometimes feel that no one really knows them well. No one. One person said this, I found this to be fascinating. When I was growing up, I'd go to church two, three times a week, and it was my community. But I haven't been for more than a decade and haven't found anything to take its place. There's a social fabric that is eroding, and loneliness is the result. And so what do we do as a culture to solve loneliness? What do we do? Well, we, we, it, we've turned to entertainment, right? Um, we, we turn to shopping. It's like, well, I'm lonely, but this is going to make me feel better, and so I'll go, I'll go shopping or something like that. Um, we, we turn to sex. Uh, we turn to porn. We turn to all these different things to try to get, like, some little level of, of, of connection, Right? But culturally, the greatest unspoken belief is that the cure to loneliness is fame. The cure to loneliness is fame, and this is like our cultural mantra that we live with. We feel lonely, but, but we think that if we can just get that hero-making moment, then being known will solve the pain. That hero making moment. You've seen these moments where somebody posts something or says something or some circumstance that happened to capture something on film, and next thing you know, they have like a hundred thousand followers. They're instantly famous, right? Many of us, we long for these moments. And it's what people believe is actually gonna save them from the loneliness because they do whatever they can to make it last as long as possible. I don't know if you guys remember this. Blazer fans in the house, you might remember this uh, T-shirt. You guys remember that? Maddie, do you remember it? Maybe you do. CJ McCollum, he had this Twitter conversation with this this Warriors fan, and it basically went like this. Uh, CJ was talking about the Warriors and about their team and about how the Blazers are are really trying and a bunch of different things, and uh, she said, you know, why don't you win a few championships and then we'll talk. That was her, her tweet to CJ McCollum. And uh, so CJ McCollum just tweeted back just one phrase. He just said, I'm trying, Jennifer. <laughs> I just love that. So it, it like blew up. Everybody thought it was hilarious, and they're retweeting it. it turned into this whole internet meme. And uh, any, anyways, she made T-shirts, this Warrior fan made t-shirts that said, I'm trying Jennifer. They like sold out. All these people were buying these t-shirts. It was a huge deal. They like highlighted it on ESPN and all this stuff. So I, got, I thought it was kind of funny. So I go check this lady's Twitter out. Her whole Twitter now is all about this one moment. She has like the banner with like her meeting CJ McCollum and, and she has like 100,000 followers now and all these people are like, you're amazing, you had that one moment and she's just like, I'm gonna milk it for all it's worth. I've gotta hang on to the connection. I've gotta hang on to the fame. There was a an Australian kid. Some of you will probably remember this. Who um, came up behind like one of their senators and smashed an egg on the back of the senator's uh, head. I don't know if you saw that, like while he was doing an interview, and um, it, he was like protesting some of the things that this senator believes, right? And uh, it, it turns out that this kid got like worldwide famous from this egg incident, and everybody loves him because everybody hates this senator. And so they started, like, funding this. This kid has raised, like, a million dollars for the causes that he believes in, and tons of people are following him. It's a hero-making moment. He got famous. Uh, Recently, just the other day, um, there was a gentleman who uh, is Sikh, and he uh, had a, kind of for Pride Month, had a a rainbow turban that he had uh, crafted and wore and took a photo of himself. And Obama retweeted the photo, and instantly, like, a million followers of this guy, right, just because he had this rainbow turban on. And in an interview, he said this. He said, I'm going to try to stay as visible as possible in the coming years. What does that mean? I need the fame. And I'm gonna to try to hang on to it as long as I possibly can, why? There's an underlying belief that attention equals intimacy. Attention equals intimacy. But fame doesn't deliver, right? Like we could just ask people that are famous, did it deliver, are you still lonely? And they're like, yes, I'm desperately lonely. We have this belief that humans will be the solution to whatever the problem may be in our lives, and I don't wanna downplay that hope and that great connecting force, it's a good thing, but let me just say this, you need God more. <laughs> does that fall on deaf ears? Like, how does, that, how does that hit you? You need him more. You need him more than attention. You need him more than the people even around you. They're gifts. It's a great thing. It's not good for a man to be, be alone. I get it. No emails. I promise. I'm on board with you. You need him more. You need relationship with him. I I was writing this and I just thought, how is the church gonna respond when I just tell them this whole the whole message? Do you have a relationship with him? He wants it. How does it fall on your ears? Do you just go, oh, I've heard it before? Okay, sure, yeah. Duh. Are you gonna get to something more interesting next week? No, I'm actually not, because this entire series is about relationship. Do you have it? Are you hearing his secrets? Are you lonely? Just do like a soul audit in a moment. Are you lonely? He's calling you tonight. The invitation is to know the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace in the same way that David knew him. And it's possible. But maybe you you are here and, and you already know God relationally. And you're like, yeah, I have a relationship with God. Well, then the call for us is to cultivate a heart for God over time to actually cultivate that heart for God, to not lose that passion. Uh, Does this sound familiar? Next slide. You have an encounter with God and you're just like, I am sold out for God. I am all in. I just, wow, he just so put me in awe. Nothing could persuade me out of this. And so it just leads to passion. Just the next days, the weeks, the months, the years, you're just like, I am on fire for God. I can't wait. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I can't wait to see just even some saved into this relationship that I have. And so you got courage and boldness. You're willing to say anything to do anything. But then all of a sudden in your life, there's this difficulty that comes up. Or there's this mental tension that arises. And you just go, Huh, okay, wow, that's really a huge bummer. And, and God, were you, like, did you see that? Where were you with that? And then after that, what happens is, is time compromise. And so you just start, you stop taking the time every day to, to actually sit with God and say, okay, but I want to read you, and then I want you to read me. And, and so you just compromise on your time. And then eventually you get disillusioned. And now instead of a history of God showing up and that being reinforced through relationship, you have a history where you perceive that he didn't show up. And it's, it's reinforced through lack of time even spent with him. And so you just get disillusioned. You're like, man, I, I don't even know anymore. And then eventually you start turning to other gods because you're not actually getting the peace that surpasses all understanding anymore. So you gotta turn elsewhere. And so you find whatever it is, whether it's, it's alcohol or, or weed or, or shopping or, or a person or a new opportunity or, or a new neighborhood to live in or, or whatever it is. And so you, you turn to these other gods thinking that they're going to deliver, but it just ends up in confusion. You're just like, I don't even know what I believe anymore. And why are all these people, you know, they say that they think that they have the truth. It's just like, come on, really? I don't know about you, but I've been on this cycle many times. I wish it wasn't the case. Um, I don't think that this is the promise for the Christian life. Um, to me, this isn't the clearest path from glory to glory, but it has been my path many times. If you find yourself somewhere on that list, and in fact, if we could just put that back up one more time, if you find yourself on this list, you need two things. You need two things. First, you need grace and patience for yourself. Stress and worry and striving do not solve this. So you think, oh, oh, man, I'm getting disillusioned. And Alex, he talked about getting disillusioned. And oh my gosh, he almost like it's like a prophecy. Now I'm going to go to other gods, and it's self fulfilling. All this, no, 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 none of that. What you need in that moment is you need to have a little bit of grace, a little bit of patience, and you need to say, God, I'm here to be encountered again. God, I'm here to rest in you again. God, I remember there was a season of my life where I just got so disillusioned by the Bible, particularly. Can I say that as a pastor? I don't know. Um, I got so disillusioned by the Bible, I was just like, I can't even read it anymore. And every morning for like two months, I just went on a walk. And this is what I said at the beginning of my walk. I said, God, if you want to speak to me, speak to me, or else I'm just going to have a nice walk, all right? It was a, an amazing time and very, very liberating for my soul, but it began because I wasn't using, reading the scriptures and, and spending time with God in a religious way. I had been using it in a relational way so I could just transfer that relationally to encounter him in another space. Can you? The other thing that you need is an unwavering commitment to the presence of God. Just an unwavering commitment to the presence of God. You're not committed to a church, you're not committed to you know, reading a Bible plan or anything like that, you're committed to his presence. He committed to his presence. David was addicted to the presence of God. Psalm 16 says this, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with, new, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He was so presence-focused. I just want to be with you. At, in your presence, there's joy. There's, there's pleasures all throughout my life. There was a refusal for David to change his worldview. Resource, peace, comfort, all came from God, and David wasn't about to change his mind on that truth. Tonight, there's an opportunity for you to return to this relationship, to return to this way of life where the source is constantly recognized regardless of the trial that's in front of you. How many of you guys have ever read this passage in Revelation and been a little bit confused? I hold this against you. God's speaking to a a, a particular church in the book of Revelation. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Have you ever read that and you're like, what things? What are you talking about? Or have you ever thought, hey, something more concrete would be a little bit helpful, right? It's like, how about this? I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far far, uh, you have fallen. Repent and sing a lot of worship songs, like 20 will will do. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Or uh, repent and uh, just go ahead and read like the book of Isaiah, and that's going to be enough. Or repent and, uh, yeah, just go outside. Give yourself 20 minutes without the iPhone, and you should be in better shape with me. Nope. (laughs) Do what you did at first. Why? Because anything else would be religion. What you are doing when you do what you did at first is you are rehearsing your romance history with God. You're rehearsing your history. It's relationship, not transaction. One of the primary things I remember about giving my life to Jesus uh, was that the year was 2007. Do you guys know why 2007? will probably go down as the, one of the most important years in human history, do you guys know why? Anybody? Even Andoni, I'm disappointed in you, man. The iPhone, the iPhone came out in 2007. As important as, as uh, the Gutenberg's printing press just un- just radically shaped the way that we will live for the rest of our lives. Uh, The iPhone came out. Do you guys remember boredom? Do you guys remember that when you'd get bored? (laughs) No more. You know what's not boring is having God speak into the loneliness, call out your destiny, and gifting, all the while counseling you internally through the difficulties of relationships and past wounds. That's not boring at all. And so I remember when, when in, in 2007, when I first started following Jesus, I would spend hours on my own in worship. I would just be up in my room, just, just playing my guitar, singing worship songs. I would spend hours reading the Bible. I remember when I got to college, I remember I'd wake up early and I'd be reading the Bible and I was just like, I've never heard of any of this stuff. I was just, wow, this is amazing. And I would be so bummed about class. I'm like, oh, class, really? I don't want to go to class. I want to keep on reading the Bible. I was just obsessed with it that's what I did at first. And it was lovely. I got got an iPhone in 2012. And my distraction levels increased dramatically. I actually think maybe notifications are like just from the enemy. Just you you can't, don't have any notifications. I'd be like, I'm giving everything to ding. And I'm like, Oh, wow, that email is so fascinating. I've never thought about that. You know, God, I am going to give you a lot, but this email right now is just phenomenal, phenomenal email. And all of a sudden, what happened in my life is I just seemed to not really have time for the things that I did at first. It's like, where's the time going? I still have the passion for doing the things I did at first, but gosh, I just feel like I have no time because every time I'm sitting down and I'm like, I'm like you know what's more interesting than Jeremiah? eBay, hmm. Dallas Willard, he said uh, once that the enemy of relationship with God is busyness. It's busyness. So this summer, as we slow down and we contemplate the poetry about life with God, my encouragement to you is to try to make a commitment to say no to more things than you have ever said before. To to turn the phone off, to just make a commitment and just say, I'm just not gonna have it in the room with me. And I'm gonna actually get in the room. (laughs) I'm actually gonna sit there. And I'm actually gonna open myself up to you, maybe for the first time. David had a one-track mind. And to say yes to the one thing makes saying no to everything else so much easier. So how are we going to cultivate this together? How about a little bit of uh, redemptive tech use? How about that? What the enemy meant for evil, we're going to now use that for good. How about that? I want you to do this with me. Get your phones out. Here's the concrete part of the message. You're like, I've been snoozing. That's okay. We have a little bit of a concrete thing we're going to do together. I want you to get your phone out. And I just thought this would be a really cool thing for us to do as we're in this series throughout the entirety of summer. And what I want you to do is I want you to set an alarm. I'm going to do it right now. I want you to set an alarm for 2.30 p.m. And uh, if you work during 2.30 p.m., just make sure it's like on vibrate or something like that. But I just want you to set an alarm for 2.30 p.m. And as a church, what I've been wanting to do is move us towards a liturgy throughout the week that we can imagine our entire church doing at the same time. Wouldn't it be amazing is if we we knew in our church at Saints Hill at at 2.30 p.m., everybody's alarm is going off and what we're gonna do is we're going to recite Psalm 23 together. We're in our own separate world. Some of you are gonna be at home with your kids. Some of you are gonna be at work. Some of you are gonna be at school. Some of you are gonna be just relaxing. And what we're gonna do at 2.30 p.m., not, not now, but 2.30 p.m. <laughs> what we're going to do at 2.30 p.m. Is, is when that alarm goes off, we'll know everybody else in our church is also going to be reciting Psalm 23 together. So, so here's what I want to do. I want us to stand up together, and I want us to declare this for the first time together. And from this point forward, throughout all of the summer, we'll know when that, when that alarm goes off, oh. It's not just me, it's a cloud of witnesses and it's the entire body that I'm a part of. Once again reiterating that God is my shepherd, I shall not lack, I don't want. He leads me beside green pastures to restore my soul. He wants relationship with me. Let's all stand together and let's read this as we close. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever so at that when that alarm goes off that's what we're going to think about that's what we're going to recite if you're in a place where you can recite it out loud great if you're not just say it in your head jesus we just say thank you so much